Short Reverse Show, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name is Edwin Davis, and joining me this week, through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Matt Risby. Hi Matt, how's it going? Hey man, uh, I'm alright. I've got um, very sore legs, having uh, recently taken up running again um, mm. for the first time in a long time. I had a quite uh, ig- ignominious end to my running career <laughs> about five or six years ago, where I dropped out of a 10k race after less than a kilometre. Because I just, I just didn't think I could be bothered. I thought you were going to say doping. No, um, I was going round, and the, the organizer said, "Sorry, mate, no professionals. Uh, you're going to make everyone look bad." <laughs> um, no, I hadn't put any training in, and I was wheeze, ah. wheezing after about 500 meters. So I sacked that off um, and made it to the finish line before my wife, who was there to watch me, arrived. Uh, and she arrived to get a spot, and I was like, "Hey, how's it going?" And she was like, "Yeah." <laughs> But I've been, you know, like Al Pacino in Godfather 3, I thought I was out and they pulled me back in. Mm. Um, but the, the thing is about exercise, Ed, and I'm sure you'll appreciate this, you're a man who likes to look after himself. You feel great, but I'm not sure the bit before it is worth it. Mm. Do you know what I mean? I feel I feel like really good after I finish running. But actually the, the idea of like running is like, you know, like on a Sunday when you have to go back to school. And yeah. just that dread started to kick in. Like the the just pulling myself off the sofa, like peeling myself out into the into the street to go and do a run. That's way worse than what what's the benefit anyway? Like, you know, prolonged life. I'm not I'm not sure that I'm that bothered. Yeah, I definitely relate to that because I often when I you know, I try and go running sort of four or five times a week when I can. Usually it's going to be after I finish work. I finish work usually around seven o'clock. So if I'm going to the gym, it's going to be around eight o'clock. And that hour between getting home, having, you know, worked worked a full day and, you know, kind of just kind of collapsing on the sofa that it's so hard to then think, OK, I'm going to sit up. I'm going to change into my running shorts and put on my shoes and then go to the gym. But I can usually trick myself by saying to myself, you know what, even if you just walk to the gym, that's more than you would have done. So you're already up on what you would have been doing if you just sat on the sofa and played Tetris Effect for two hours, which is Mm. very easy, very easy to do. So like by the time I get to the gym, I'm like, ah, you know what, I am going to run, you know, three miles or whatever. Um, And like you, I've also been trying to get back into doing it seriously or semi-seriously. Uh, recently because I kind of fell off a little bit over the summer because I was working a lot of late nights at work. My gym that I usually go to closes at 10, so I couldn't use that as I would usually. And I can't can't really run outside in Florida because it's either going to be unbearably hot and humid and just, in, just make it a fucking miserable thing to do, or it's going to be pouring down with rain and you're just in such danger from that of falling and doing yourself a mischief or being hit by someone who's not paying attention or can't see you in the torrential rain mm. so i'm trying to get back onto the, the the whole running tip uh at the moment i'm doing all right with it but yeah it's the the motivation to do it is the hard thing you have to you know kind of bargain with yourself about whether or not it's worth it 
Mm, that feeling that you get after you finish a run, surely there's got to be some kind of drug that you can take just to replicate mm. that. Because the other thing for me is I'm I'm you know stuffed by the fact that I work in food, right? So mm, like yeah. often I'll have a donut for breakfast, and that's not mm. healthy. Um, and I just so I just feel like you know I'm just saving it off. Really, it's not not actually the best thing for me to have done. Yeah. Yeah, for me, it's that it's there's a, a very ready access to junk food at my work uh, because you know everyone works very late nights in the game industry a lot of the time, and they always like a stocking up the snacks. And there's not the healthiest option. Like the healthiest option is like a bag of salted cashews, mm. which is still not that healthy for you and you know if you're working late night you need to pep you know kind of like to pep yourself up you go and grab like a soda or a lot of people drink monster energy drinks and stuff like that which i don't because they taste like piss Mm. but the yeah it's there's a lot of temptations that it's often very hard to resist if you're already kind of like worn down by thinking god i've been here for like 12 hours and there's no end in sight Mm, yeah welcome to no end in sight a motivational fitness podcast with two people who don't like running but we'll do it if pushed it will do it out of spite mm. yeah i also i do better running uh on a treadmill now than i used to do when i ran in sheffield because a no hills mm, yeah. <laughs> that's always a killer and also one of the last times i went running in sheffield i accidentally knocked an old woman over <laughs> because, you say accidentally well you know you know for people who don't live in sheffield there's often uh you know houses that are kind of up on a slope and you have to walk down a series of steps to see it and the steps are often screened off from the street so you can't see if someone's going to step out in front of you and they can't see you if you're walking along so i was running along listening most likely to uh watch the throne because that was my preferred running music for a long time and this uh this woman just like stepped out right in front of me and i barreled into her and then was immediately just being like oh my god i'm so sorry i'm so sorry oh god you know i'm i I absolutely didn't mean to hurt you i didn't see you and it was mortifying for everyone involved Mm, it did sound like the bitch deserved it though to be fair (laughs) Mm, you shouldn't be hanging around at the bottom of uh, stairwells if you don't want to be hit. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's a rough and tumble place, is, <laughs> is Sheffield. It is, it is. Anyway, what are we doing? Films, I guess. Films and mm-hmm. TV. And uh, we'll start in that discussion by going on to the news in what is pretty much just a solid Disney block this week because there was a lot of news uh, about Disney this week. Very little of it positive. <laughs> um, mm. The The main positive news, I guess, if you're a Disney shareholder, was that they became the first company ever to have $5 billion earners in a single year because they have a lot of very profitable properties. They had Captain Marvel, I think, uh, chronologically, was the first of them. Then you had the Avengers Endgame, which uh, also became the highest-grossing movie of all time using some metrics recently. Uh, Then you had The Lion King. Then you had Toy Story 4. What's the fifth one? What am I missing? Uh, you said, uh, no, Dumbo didn't do it, did it? <laughs> no, Dumbo didn't manage it. No, that's a shame. Aladdin? Yep, that's the one. Yeah, that would have been Not it. a forgettable movie at all. Literally, no. literally still in theatres and I'd forgotten it had happened. Yeah, um, it's still going, isn't it? I know, well, obviously it's kind of school holidays and stuff, but 
Yeah, I've not met a single person who thought that, you know, they enjoyed it. I know a few people at my work who who enjoyed it, but they were very much of their like, eh, it was fine sort of thing. You know, there's no one I can think of who sincerely thinks like it's better than the original. Every Anything other than like representation in that the people in it are actually, <laughs> actually remotely resemble the characters that they're playing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But but yeah, that's pretty much the only point in which anyone will say, yeah, it drastically improves over the original. But yeah, so that that's a kind of a sign of just how dominant they are currently in terms of, you know, the the, the properties that they own, your your Pixar and your Marvel, and they're very, very lucrative and successful remakes of some of their animated hits. And uh, there's been a lot of uh, threatening about this. Uh, Mark Harris uh, was on Twitter talking about this earlier today. And uh, David Sims, who writes for The Atlantic and is the co-host of the Blank Check podcast, has generally been a lot more optimistic about this whole situation because, as he pointed out, Disney have a very rough 2020 ahead of them because they, you know, they, they, outside of whatever Marvel projects they have coming out, they don't really have a huge amount of stuff that's kind of a guaranteed hit and they actually aren't, they actually aren't putting out that many movies next year. So 2019 may seem like kind of a high watermark for them and things will settle down a little bit going forwards. But it certainly feels as if this year is, is like the most apocalyptic in terms of the sense of Disney consuming all culture and having way too much control over the kinds of movies that people want to still go out to the cinema and watch. Mm, yeah. They will have more to come as well, right? Yeah, but like in terms of the stuff that they've been putting out that, you know, has given them this particularly buoyant year, like there's not really that many remakes of their old stuff that they can do that's going to have the same cachet as The Lion King and Aladdin and more recently Beauty and the Beast had. Mm. Like I can't see Maleficent 2 being kind of like a runaway success. They haven't got a Star War out next year in theatres. Uh, they've got plenty of Star Wars stuff on other formats uh, that are going to yeah. kind of fill the gap. But I, I think like next year, li- literally like one of the most high profile thing they're putting out is a Cruella de Vil movie, which mm. doesn't seem like it's going to be a kind of like roaring success. Yeah, it's interesting to see that like they greenlit and made the live action Lady and the Tramp pretty early doors, and that has. Mm. That is going to be on Disney Plus. Yeah. And when's The Little Mermaid coming out? Year after next? Yeah, I think that's 2021 or 2022. It's a little ways off. And that Mm. feels like the last really big one that they can draw on that is going to really mean something to the, you know, the millennial audience who are kind of the people they're clearly appealing to with The Lion King and Aladdin, people who were children when those came out now have children of their own and want to kind of get that dual level of enjoyment of the burst of nostalgia and also the sense of, hey, something I can take my kid to that I won't actively hate. Yeah, I'm just waiting for that sweet, sweet Basil the Great Mouse Detective live action reboot. Mm, Probably starring Benedict Cumberbatch. You'd hope so. It'd be the obvious choice. And uh, Um, nothing if not obvious with their casting. mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think I did see someone saying that was going to happen, but I couldn't tell if it was a joke or not. Uh, I think, yeah, I think there was a story saying that they were like looking into it because, again, 
it's like if you're looking at that window of mid 80s to mid 90s when they had those hits that were real kind of generational and really stuck with a lot of people that's like one of the last ones you know things are bad if they then announce they're doing like oliver and company Mm, yeah and they really get billy joel to play oliver in real life i mean oh that's a horrifying thought i've just had (laughs) it's Um, gonna be like cats though oh god (laughs) billy joel in a cat suit playing all of those characters yeah, George Galloway in his uh, <laughs> in his lycra. That's <laughs> yeah, horrifying. In uh, other Disney news, and kind of again related to the fact that they control everything, um, it was announced this week that they are, or it's been announced over the last couple of weeks, that they are cancelling a lot of projects that had been in development at 20th Century Fox. And whilst a lot of them seem more like things that were being thrown around and may only have existed as like notes on a board somewhere as opposed to things that maybe would ever actually see the light of day like a remake of the league of extraordinary gentlemen a sequel to the assassin's creed movie that came out a couple of years ago like stuff that people know but also people know weren't terribly successful and maybe they would give another go at uh, or, or like other a couple of computer game adaptations, like a, a Mega Man game and a Sim, a Mega Man movie and a Sims movie. You know things that pro kind of maybe mooted for a while and would never ever actually get made. It does kind of like point to the way in which the worst expectations about what would happen with the Fox Disney merger are coming to fruition in some cases, in that they are cutting back on a lot of these projects that they were developing that. And they are steering them away from producing, you know, original works or stuff that's, you know, maybe for a more adult audience, which seems to be something that was mooted for a while, that they may use them basically as the new touchstone towards just basically saying, yeah, you do like Fantastic Four and X-Men when we decide to put them in the MCU and not much else, which is kind of dispiriting for a studio that has such a rich history and has produced some amazing movies over the last you know century uh and which still has a few really promising movies on the slate like um james gray's ad astra which is coming out towards the end of the year and at the very least is getting a decent push from fox slash disney but yeah it's just it's just a very kind of dispiriting to see that all the people who are critical about the fox disney merger have proved to be kind of like startlingly correct about it Mm, yeah and i think we'll be talking next week about disney quite a lot won't we because given their position in well given their position as the center of culture (laughs) um that we feel it would be it would be remiss of us if we didn't speak about the d23 thing next week and Mm. all the we haven't really got into the ins and outs of the the, the Fox merger, uh, other than saying it was pretty bad. And we've been holding off, and it seems like a good time to do it next week, mm. even though we talk about Disney every week. Yeah, but also I think we're, we've planned for a long time to talk about the Disney renaissance of the 80s and 90s, and basically, which, which in many ways lays the foundation for where they are as a company now. Mm-hmm. because it took them from a company that was on the verge of being broken up and kind of picked apart by vultures because it was so wildly unsuccessful <laughs> to something that owns like 40% of the film market. So 
uh, th- that's that's also going to be something we'll be discussing there. Like how exactly, because because the the link between what Disney was and how it's become, you know, has to go through the Disney Renaissance. Mm. Uh, in other uh, Disney news, again, they uh, there were a couple of stories this past week that saw them express not sufficiently anti-fascist opinions <laughs> on a couple of their projects that they are overseeing. The first of which being that apparently some executives at Disney are a little concerned that the forthcoming movie Jojo Rabbit from Taika Waititi, which is a comedy satire about a young boy whose uh, his imaginary friend is Hitler, is Hitler, played by Taika Waititi, which was a Fox project that they now own, might alienate Trump fans who are also Disney fans, which seems a silly concern. Um, mm. And also uh, it is very telling in terms of you think a movie that makes fun of Hitler might annoy Trump supporters. And more recently, Art Spiegelman, the great Pulitzer Prize winning um, comics author and scholar who is most famous probably for writing Mouse, one of the kind of most harrowing and but also accessible books about the the Holocaust wrote a foreword for a folio collecting a lot of Golden Age Marvel comics and in his intro for it he talked about the early days of Marvel comics and DC but Marvel in particular and and how they were shaped by concerns about fascism and obviously the it's a character like Captain America who was introduced punching Hitler in the face and how the overtly political stance that Marvel took at that time with that character led to them receiving kind of like death threats from, you know, American fascists and American Nazis and talking about the parallels between that and, you know, the waves of superhero movies now and people wanting to escape into fantasy as fascism is on the rise worldwide. And he made a reference in it to um, the, the modern equivalent of the Red School, who he referred to as the Orange School, which made me cringe a little bit because that's just such, that feels like such an easy trump joke to make but it's fairly mild in terms of political statements that you can make about uh, an administration that runs concentration camps mm. and disney who own marvel or marvel you know who are owned by disney asked him to take out the reference so he pulled the whole introduction uh, uh, introduction and ended up publishing on the guardian website and uh, it's great if anyone wants to go and and read it if you just google art spiegelman you'll be able to find it and we'll put a link to it in the description for this but yeah, both of which are not great looks from Disney. And I think in both cases, what they're talking about is wanting to be you know, apolitical, not wanting to take sides. And uh, that seems like just such absolute bullshit thing to take when you're talking about the, some of the things that the Trump administration has done. And also it seems to be real cowardly kind of like hedging their bets, thinking, well, you know, he might lose election next year and then we can just ignore all of this stuff you know yeah just for for a company and we talked about this in the the past you know a company that uh espouses to be kind of progressive in terms of its representational stuff for it to kind of like show its cowardly corporate underbelly like this and to be basically saying uh we don't really want to take a a, 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 any sort of stand against fascism because it may alienate a probably i'm going to say a fairly small percentage of our of our audience uh is you know disgraceful mm, yeah it's 
I, I don't really understand why they think that they would be preserving the box office income of Nazis who I don't think would be queuing up to see Aladdin mm. um, or, you know, the latest releases of Captain Marvel. Um, but then I did... They're angry that, about Captain Marvel already. Well, yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, they don't need any more. Um, the CEO of Marvel is a major Trump donor. Mm. So that yeah. does not particularly surprise me. Yeah. Uh, and again, it's that idea of, you know, being apolitical is in fact being political, but pretending you're not because you're you're definitely taking a stand on one side, which is to say, hey, you can't criticise my side. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and in less serious news, uh, there's going to be an Obi-Wan show, maybe, on... Uh, Disney Plus, apparently Ewan McGregor is going to reprise his role from the Star Wars prequels and, you know, bring the character back on a streaming service, which is something that's been in the uh, in the works, or at least that he has been actively pushing for on all forms of social media for a long time, it seems. Uh, it seemed not to go a day without bringing it up as a possibility of him playing the character again, particularly once Disney expanded their uh, avenues for distributing the show so it's obviously not a done thing yet and it, you know whether or not it actually happens is another question uh, entirely but it definitely uh, is is not that surprising considering how often he pushed for it and how much they are determined to kind of get as much star wars content out there as they can that they would go back to one of the few elements of the prequels that seems to kind of very broadly been liked by most people. Mm, yeah, I watched the Star Wars prequels this week um, mm. in a fit of madness um, because I thought that perhaps in the past I'd not been uh, too kind to them and, and maybe I'd judged them too harshly. Uh, but it turns out I, I judged them just the right amount of harshly because mm. um, they're fucking terrible. But at the heart of it are several good actors who are just screaming with their eyes <laughs> uh, into the audience, like, give me some material to work with. Um, I'm looking at Ewan McGregor and Natalie Portman uh, in this. Natalie Portman gets a way worse deal than Ewan McGregor does in those movies. Mm. Um, but Ewan McGregor is, he nails the character of Obi-Wan, even though the film doesn't. And I think that this would be a cool, like, way for him to actually put in some better work as well mm. i mean not not the work the material would hopefully be better i'm glad that they've not pursued the obi-wan movie directed by stephen doldry that was seemed to be uh very too weird a rumor to be false mm. and i'm glad that didn't happen i think it's weird to think that disney after the reaction to solo were saying well what we don't want is to overdo it with star wars so people get sick of it and then have announced like three Star Wars live action TV series that will all be out between the next two trilogies. Mm. Um, so it's, you know, it's not really genuine as a concern. Maybe they'll just think that we'll, you know, if they don't release two in one year, they'll think that everyone's forgotten the fact that they did. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's, it, I I think it would be cool. I think all the TV shows they've announced 
um, sound like they would be good to the Cassian Andor show, the the Mandalorian show, which they say is an original idea. But I mean, it's no coincidence they had a Bounty Hunters film in the works for so long with Josh mm. Trank, and then that suddenly didn't happen, and all of a sudden there's a TV show with all the Bounty Hunters in it. Um, it seems uh, like you know, long form storytelling is great. We're going to get more content, a more um, uh, runtime of you and McGregor playing. Obi Wan that we did in three movies in one season yeah. of a TV show, and I mean I don't really know what they're going to do with it, like because he's just a guy who lives in the desert <laughs> for a bit. I don't know how many, uh, um, you know, Tuscan Raiders he's going to have to carve up um, <laughs> each week. Um, but yeah, I'd, yeah, I don't really don't really know what they're going to do with it. But hey, I'd like Hugh McGregor is that in that role. I wish he'd have had a bit more to get his teeth into because it was, you know, they weren't particularly tough days at the office. Um, hmm. um, and yeah, he, I think he was audibly frustrated with having to work with so much green screen and, you know, some of the, some of the stuff he has to do. And the, in the Phantom Menace, he's like, he spends most of the film sitting on a fucking spaceship, um, hmm. doing nothing, just basically waiting by the phone. Um, yeah. like the most competent character is just left on a spaceship, which is, you know, a bit galling. And I did realize in the, in the Phantom Menace, they could have just made Qui-Gon Jinn and Obi-Wan Kenobi one character. It doesn't actually make a difference mm-hmm. to anything. Yeah. And it would kind of, it would seem to make more sense of like the actual relationship between him and Anakin in the sense of like, if he's the guy who finds him and then pushes for him to train him then it makes their falling out and his kind of fall over it more tragic as opposed to being the guy who doesn't want to train him at any point and as then just kind of begrudgingly does it but mm. this is all this is all just relitigating stuff for the red letter media did yeah. years ago the the uh, you just reminds me then talking about you know natalie portman in those movies clearly you know being a hugely talented actress who's gone on to do much better work and just kind of flailing i overheard some people at work talking about the forthcoming Thor movie in which she is going to be playing Thor and one of them kind of like saying you know I you know I'm not (laughs) prefacing it by saying you know I'm not against a lady a a, a female Thor I'm kind of thinking hmm yeah, it's kind of, are you, are you not ag- uh, against it? But at the same time, you know, like, you know, I, but then say, you know, I don't think it should be, you know, like Natalie Portman, you know, she's such a bad actress. And then through the course of the conversation, it becoming clear that they had only seen her in the Star Wars prequels. And kind mm. of thinking that it's such a shame <laughs> that that's kind of all that she is known for. I think for a lot of generation of, of people who maybe aren't drawn to the kind of movies that she does otherwise. Uh, because uh, I think she's a, a tremendously talented and versatile actress, and you know, like even in, up until recently, in something like Vox Lux, which is a very divisive movie, but I think she gives an amazing performance in. Uh, I think it'd be it'd be good if that movie turns out to be pretty decent, and she gets to kind of silence a lot of people who, for years, le- were led to believe that she was bad just because she was in some bad movies, and then a lot of the subsequent big movies she's been in haven't utilized her particularly well which mm. i think is probably fair to say of like the first two thor movies yeah 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 definitely that i mean they they fall into all the same pitfalls that mm. the star wars prequels do um using the most interesting actor in it as a kind of window dressing with no depth mm. or no agency and no nothing just nothing it's just a you may as well have drawn a face on a shower curtain like there's like nothing there 
Yeah. And our final bit of news, and this will lead into our main topic, was uh, the news yesterday that Peter Fonda had passed away. Peter Fonda, of course, was uh, a scion of Hollywood royalty, one of the, the, the children of Henry Fonda, and a tremendously important figure in terms of the evolution of American movies in the, the 60s and 70s through being in and co-writing Easy Rider and, you know, a lot of his subsequent work. Just a tremendous, a tremendously talented actor who I think never quite uh, achieved the same sort of ubiquity that, that, that he did during those years. But even in later work, like The Limey, in which he's incredible, and the film I think I saw him in most recently, probably uh, 310 to Humor, in which he has a small part, he kind of became an incredibly dependable supporting character actor in a lot of things you know he he had a very long and rich and interesting career and uh yeah it's always sad when someone passes away but there is something emblematic about him and what he represented about a particular period of american filmmaking and american culture Mm, and to carry the fonder name as well kind of bears an awful lot of weight um, I first encountered him weirdly, like the film uh, Yuli's Gold. Mm, yeah, um, one of his so last I, starring roles, probably. Yeah, Oscar nominated he was for that. Um, indeed, and I think that's why I watched it because uh, I think it was just on Sky late one night or something, and I remembered hearing that he'd been nominated for it, and it was a bit of a thing because he hadn't really done much of note. Um, and then obviously, kind of plowing backwards through stuff like you know, Head and Easy Rider, definitely. Yeah, he really weirdly when we you, we've been trying to list all the films that we would want to talk about in this week's episode, and he just keeps popping up in all of them. Mm. Yeah, I can only presume he had a fucking sweet weed hookup, <laughs> <laughs> like, and that's why people hired him. Yeah, you would just imagine them showing up to his house, recognizing him, and being like, "Hey, you don't have to pay," which yep. I presume is also the case of uh, Harrison Ford, probably the most famous of uh, establishment Hollywood stoners. Mm. Yep. Yeah, indeed. How are you gonna how are you gonna charge Han Solo for weed? It's just it's just not done. But yeah, like I said, our main topic kind of builds on from that, which is the the topic of the counterculture. And when we talk about the counterculture, we're specifically talking about a period from like the early to mid sixties to the, the early seventies in America, a period that was marked by Tremendous upheaval, societal upheaval, a growing distrust of the government that was kind of fostered by the secrecy with which the Cold War was waged, the sense of dread that came on the back-to-back crises of the Cuban Missile Crisis and the assassination of Kennedy, and both Kennedys really, um, but specifically JFK, the escalating Vietnam War and the growing realisation that it was an illegal conflict being waged on a in tremendously immoral way and that the entirety of the American populace was being lied to about it. And at the same time, in terms of film, you know, you had the crumbling and eventual end of the Hayes Code, which led to a wave of movies that in theme and content were a lot more mature and bold than movies in America had been, or uh, that you know Hollywood movies in America had been allowed to be for quite some time. Certainly since the the thirties, when uh, things were a little freer and uh, less regulated, and 
there was just this tremendous burst of creativity of people questioning the precepts of American life, really, and a lot of that was expressed through the culture of time, through music, through art, through movies in particular, and, you know, that, that in terms of the interest of, of this show, you know, a, a medium that was... Uh, a, a, you know, there was, there was a wave of directors who allowed use this new freedom to kind of explore stories that hadn't really been told in that way for either ever before or not for, for quite a while. And Peter Fonda was central to that through his work with Roger Corman in things like uh, Hell's Angels. Uh, yes, was he in Hell's Angels or the Wild One? No, Wild One. Hell's Angels, Brando. yeah. Wild yeah. One with Brando. Yes, that's right. Uh, Hell's Angels, which was kind of a biker exploitation flick, which really tapped into feelings of alienation and disenfranchisement. And unlike movies of the previous era, kind of put the people who were quote unquote bad at the centre of the story and kind of lionised them for their anti-establishment vibe. Um, The psychedelia of the trip was kind of a major thing as well. That's kind of a real uh, movie that was really trying to key in on the interest in psychedelic drugs and the you know kind of the rock star heady hedonistic lifestyle and easy rider of course is kind of like one of the seminal movies of that period it really kind of gets to this sense of people trying to trying to redefine what it means to be american in a major way you know and you know there's even also some of the ruefulness of the sense of a time passing even as it's occurring when he talks about you know we blew it very much uh, a sense that kind of grew in acceptance over the years. But but yeah, so so he's kind of like the jumping off point to talk about this particular period of American movies where it really felt as if all of these artists were taking old kind of crusty genres and turning them on their head and trying to use them to reflect something about the ways in which a whole generation of people were growing up and you know kind of asking questions that maybe previous generations hadn't Mm. the the thing that i thought about most when we said we were going to talk about countercultural movies is how quickly the countercultural movies that we do have date and the Mm. fact that we don't have as much countercultural movies as we do music or art and mm. is it purely because film is not the best reactive medium? You can't just bang out a film really quickly. I mean, I suppose you can now, like, you know, you can just put it on YouTube or whatever. But, you know, an iconic performance or a, an album or, a, you know, an artwork or like an exhibition or something could be turned around way quicker than a movie can and for less money. I think there's part of that. I also think there is a a solidity to music, particularly rock music, which I think is probably the one that is most associated with that period that, you know, has kind of not really changed a huge amount in the 50 years since. Mm-hmm. Like production changes, subject matter kind of goes in and out, like prog was big for a while and it's not now. Psychedelia, you know, has never really attained the same level of ubiquity that it had in the the 60s but rock music kind of fundamentally that the idea of it the sound of it the instruments that are involved hasn't changed a huge amount in the years since whereas i feel as if 
you know, movies, they're so mutable in terms of, you know, what goes in and out of style in terms of composition and editing or acting styles as well. Like, you know, acting styles, what's considered good acting is very subjective, but also is tied to cultural ideas of, you know, kind of how big someone is allowed to be. And I do think, you know, like audience taste in terms of how much politics they want in their movies um, or how much your condition to expect in your movies, I guess, is perhaps the better way to put it, has changed quite a little bit. Like, I think a lot of movies from that year that do, from that period, that do take a very strong political stance, even though I find them to be, you know, very exciting and bracing. I think for a lot of people, they may kind of think, ah, man, I just wanted a good time. Well, you got to get political about it, you know. I think that element of them probably dates them a little more, as well as, like, even though certain concerns may be universal, like, or, or, you know, sadly still relevant, like the the fight for civil rights and things like that, unions and, and, and all that, which is still very, very relevant to, uh, to the current um, political and cultural landscape. They, you know, the specifics of them age. I think that may be as well plays into why for you know audiences now some of those movies may feel incredibly dated Mm, yeah and do you think that tv snuffs a lot of that out like you can make you know tv shows are very top there seems to be the best way to do topical things Mm. but has it ever really been utilized as a as a vehicle for the counterculture i mean you can see elements of that in something like all in the family which isn't a countercultural show in the sense that the people running it were not you know young people they were often uh, people who've been working in the television industry for quite a long time but in the character of meathead played by rob reiner who represents the counterculture to an extent you know he's very much the like lefty the more conservative archie bunker he kind of represents that point of view and allows for that kind of questioning to come into the story and you know his reaction and the fact that he probably represents the political leanings of the people making the show better than Archie Bunker does it kind of plays a part about that and and also in terms of TV being reactive there you have a sitcom that is filmed in front of a live studio audience airing weekly able to take on hot button topics with a fairly short runtime you know like you were saying about making movies you write it in like 1966, you're trying to get it made in 67, it might not come out till 68 or 69. By that time, your concerns may be completely antiquated. Whereas, you know, TV, you're writing it in February, it's on the air in April. You know, it's a very different mode and it allows, like you say, it's able to be a little more reactive and to maybe comment on things of the day. And I think you also see that in something like Saturday Night Live, which obviously starts after the peak of the counterculture, but benefited, I think, a lot from the raised awareness that came from the years of people being more attuned to politics and more willing to take a chance on comedy bits that aren't funny, (laughs) (laughs) Um, as is the case with a lot of the early Saturday Night Live. But that sense of people being more willing to take on, uh, to, to give a chance to something that is uh kind of different to what you're used to mm. and it's the anniversary of woodstock this week as well isn't mm. it yes how many years yeah. has that been 50 60 
50. Yeah. 50. Good grief. I saw uh, Patton Oswalt tweet about it earlier, and he was like, 50 years ago, an iconic Shanana gig featured <laughs> such warm-up acts as Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, and I was like, oh, that's pretty good. Um, but yeah, I had no idea that, that was coming. What a like kind of serendipitous coincidence. Mm, yeah, and as well, if you're talking about countercultural touchstones, the, the documentary Woodstock is kind of a massive part of that, you know, a movie that really captured the feeling of what it was to be there for, you know, obviously people like us who were not alive at the time. Um, it really offers a window into um, what an unpleasant place it probably was, <laughs> but with a lot of great music. Mm. It was cool that like there's is it on the album cover or on the movie poster? There's like you know a couple hugging under a duvet, stood mm. watching over, and they're still married now. Yeah, it's which is nice. pretty lovely. Um, yeah. I mean they can't remember a fucking thing that happened. They're on their <laughs> tits, um, but yeah, marriage is marriage. I guess you got to see it through. Yeah, absolutely. What are some of your kind of favorite movies from that era that you, you to you? really embody something about the counterculture. Like for me, uh, one that I really love is Robert Downey Sr.'s Putney Swope, mm-hmm. which is a incredibly um, strange comedy about a corporation that uh, appoints a kind of uh, a black employee to be the head of the company more or less to take the fall for their malfeasance, but then he kind of like turns it around. It's an advertising company and he kind of starts proposing a lot of approaches to the advertising game that are very uh, unstuffy and very hip and it turns the company around and then he gets increasingly more revolutionary as the movie goes along. And it for me, it has like the the shagginess that I associate with that period. They kind of... Uh, kind of a kind of exhilarating incoherence I guess of a time in which everyone's just trying a bunch of things um don't like the fact that the main character is voiced by Robert Downey Sr doing what he thinks a black person's voice is because the main actor apparently uh didn't do a great performance or wasn't particularly legible that part of it hasn't aged particularly well but uh otherwise it feels like a very uh, bracing and exciting movie, um, particularly in an age in which corporations have only grown more ubiquitous. Mm. I was, I was kind of wondering why I'd never seen that film, um, mm. and then when you were describing it, I think probably probably why it's not out on Blu-ray. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's reasonably widely available on DVD because Criterion put out a collection of Robert Downey Sr. movies. So it's on that. But yeah, it's maybe not one that people are rushing to release on uh, on 4K. Mm, yeah, yeah. I think I kind of was looking at a few and then before we went on, we kind of mentioned it, but something like Vanishing Point, mm, um, yeah. which is, you know, in along the side, something like Two Light, Two Lane Blacktop. Yes, um, yeah. those kind of cool kind of 60s, 70s, just kind of like dudes driving movies. And mm. I I don't really like cars or anything like that, but Vanishing Point's cool. <laughs> you know what yes. I mean? Um, but it, it's weird for me because I feel so disconnected from the ideas of of the 60s and the Summer of Love and stuff because like my parents are quite young. So 
they they were like not even 10 during the 60s and i you know mm. i couldn't ask them what the 60s was like you know you know how, you know was it cool when you were like you know living that because they were 10 <laughs> you know yeah. um so it's weird i didn't really have any kind of like role models in my life who 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 embodied i didn't have like a kind of like super weird artistic aunt who sm- smelled of like patchouli oil and you know <laughs> gave me copies of like blonde on blonde or whatever but mm. like you know so i i feel quite disassociated from it i mean the 70s yes because i had that in kind of pushed on me fairly hard as a kid but yeah the 60s is quite an odd one do you think there's a disassociation between the summer of love and that kind of idea of counterculture to us because we're british and there is there was there's definitely a a kind of an american thing to it yeah i mean obviously i think that was a part of it as well if you look at something like blow up which i think really captures the swinging london side of things Mm -hmm. but i think with london England every obviously I'm speaking from in terms of depiction in things like movies and 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 novels and things like that but with those there seemed to be more of a sense of cool about the whole thing mm-hmm. like a certain degree of a detachment like I watched last night a documentary about um David Bowie's early years called Finding Fame which is an, an okay documentary but like a lot of the the description of him like of of the 60s scene that he was kind of trying to fit into did have did have that sense of you know there was lots of sex and drugs going around but there wasn't quite the same sense of earnestness that i think americans really pursued it with and i do think that as well kind of plays into the the distance of it all i think like as a british person you look at it and you kind of think it's all a bit much, isn't it? Mm. Like, yeah, everyone, why can't everyone just calm down a little bit? <laughs> and because so, I think, because like the, 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 our equivalent would be like 60s swinging London and Carnaby mm. Street, but that all feels like so much is slipped into the realm of parody now. It's mm. very difficult to take seriously. I think a lot of it as well, like London in the 60s feels to me more like the factory scene in New York mm-hmm. where everyone is trying to be very cool about it all as opposed to you know taking drugs to have like mind expanding experiences and kind of dancing in a field it's very more like everyone's just like smoking and dancing in clubs late at night and you know just trying to look chic while doing it mm, yeah. i think it's very hard to be chic on acid well there's only one way to find out <laughs> yeah if we ever do a patreon that's the first bonus <laughs> episode yeah yeah, that would be... We we talked about this a lot. We <laughs> talked about this, not acid, because, you know, that would be too much. But mm-hmm. we talked a lot about doing a drunk episode or an, or, a, or a episode where we talked about alcohol in the movies or something and we would be drunk. And we, we talked yeah. about it because we... we um, the reason we talked about it a lot is we could never come up with a way that it wouldn't be incredibly tiresome to listen to. <laughs> Mm. Yeah, I think the closest we came to a good idea of it was the first half we would do sober and mm. then we would go to a pub and just like down five pints <laughs> and then come home and repeat the other half. Yeah. Um, this, of course, was when we both lived in the same city. And yeah, yeah that was like the, the least insufferable version I think we came up with, but it still feels like it would have been not tremendously pleasant to listen to. Um, mm. It would very, I think uh, if anyone wants to hear kind of a version of that listen to like the last 20 minutes of our twilight episode 
mm. where uh, where we were certainly I was very drunk. <laughs> mm. I was and barely awake. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, that was yeah, that was a grueling, grueling evening. Uh, fun. I think it's fairly fun to listen to though. But yeah, there is there. I think that's probably the closest we'll ever get to doing our episode about alcohol. Mm, yeah, yeah, totally. I'd just like to bring everyone's attention to uh, a fact, uh, a film, sorry, that was made. It, there was something that reminded me of this, um, but I found it on Prime earlier today when we decided we were going to do this. Um, there's a there's like a British horror film from the sixties where a bunch of like swinging cool London kids all go to a house and get murdered. Mm. Uh, it's called Haunted House of Horror, and it's actually on Amazon Prime. Uh, I found it. You should watch it. It's hilarious. Um, but like it was uh, like you know how you get films like Reefer Madness in in America, yeah. Um, it was the kind of the Brit- the only example I can think of is like the British equivalent, um, and it's yeah, it's definitely worth seeing. I'd recommend everyone watch that on Amazon Prime. Speaking about movies that kind of tried to piggyback off of that, uh, the 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 countercultural vibe. Um, have you ever seen the Otto Preminger movie Skidoo? I have only ever heard of it, but I, I obviously heard people talking about it in not the most glowing terms, but I don't know anything about it. Skidoo is a movie that Otto Preminger made in his attempt to try and remain relevant to the, the youth of the day. Mm-hmm. Now, Preminger, of course, was someone who had been making movies in Hollywood for a very, very long time. He had made a bunch of of classics. Uh, only a few years earlier, he had made Anatomy of a Murder, which is a really wonderful courtroom drama. Um, he had made Bunny Lake is Missing, which is a, an amazing and wonderful pulpy thriller with a really good performance by um, Laurence Olivier. But, you know, he was seeing a lot of the things that were going on in the kind of mid to late 60s on the the edges. And so he thought, oh, I'm going to try and capitalise this. I'm going to try and get to the heart of of what it's all about. And what he did in order to do this was dropped a ton of acid mm-hmm. and kind of came up with a culture class movie about, you know, this square sitcom parents, uh, one of whom played by, I want to say, Carol Channing, and they have a kind of like a hippie daughter who's, you know, off, you know, kind of having escapades and they're worried about her. And it's one of these sort of 60s comedies that isn't really funny so much as it is energetic. Like there's lots of people running around and trying to do things. And it's got one of the weirdest casts in you'll ever encounter. Um, it's got, uh, including, I think the last ever performance by Groucho Marx, who I think spent the whole before whole of the production being just high as a kite. It's real weird kind of hippie exploitation stuff. And the thing about it that really kind of like is the, the kind of the piece de resistance of it all is that the songs in it are all by um, Harry Nielsen, including a song at the end, which is just him singing the names of everyone in the credits and every role that they played. And it's a really weird movie. That's not great. And it's kind of a chore to sit through, <laughs> but it is one of those movies where you think this could only have been made during like this specific year like a year earlier it would not have been made because no one would have thought you know why would you want to make this a couple of years later everyone would maybe have a better sense on the counterculture but this kind of real i'd, I'd say fairly earnest attempt to try and grapple with the generation gap or whatever but in a way that's just completely ham-handed is a kind of really fascinating is as fascinating a cultural document as 
as a easy rider or a mash in terms of like if you're thinking wanting to try and understand how people in Hollywood were trying to grapple with all of these great changes that were going on around them. Mm. And that's how they chose to do it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, With Groucho Marx way. and a ton of acid. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like a party to me. Yeah, yeah. And just looking at my list of other movies that really kind of sum up the era. Um, is that, actually, it's not a movie so much. It was later made into a movie, but the book of Fear and Loving in Las Vegas, which I'm currently reading, I think is a real wonderful encapsulation of the counterculture particularly the uh the eighth chapter the wave speech that uh or the wave um tract i guess which is where hunter s thompson's character raul duke is talking about five years earlier you know the the the, the peak of the 60s in san francisco the idea of everyone thinking like they were winning and they were going to overcome evil and talking about being able to see the high point at which the wave crested and someone writing kind of in the wake of Richard Nixon winning the presidency in 1968 and this real sense of the forces of love and progress being completely overwhelmed by you know cynicism and darkness and being just completely smashed and that I think is an intractable part of the legacy of the counterculture is it's not just you have this period of people, you know, experimenting, some some cases fruitlessly, like Skidoo, but, you know, experimenting with different forms and different ways of storytelling, where you get something like Medium Cool, which is like a fucking incredible movie that really pushes the boundary of what a documentary is, you know, that is kind of fiction, but kind of an account of the 1968 democratic convention and the, the the riots and the chaos and all this sort of stuff and that really you know is geared towards making you question the nature of film and reality itself and the medium through which you are experiencing the world you also have the you know the come down from it all the fact that within a couple of years a lot of the the, the key figures of the movements were you know they were dead or they were in jail or they had become you know kind of sellouts you know, or, or they had basically moved past all of that stuff and pursued a kind of more straight-laced career. I thought it was interesting thinking about Easy Rider today, you know, that the three principal people there in, involved in, the, or the three principal cast members of that movie, you know, you have Dennis Hopper and Peter Fonda, who both had careers that are kind of emblematic of a lot of people who were part of the counterculture, you know, they were they kind of like burned very bright, very young, and then kind of kind of burnt out and just never really achieved that level of success again but then you have jack nicholson who you know became a huge star and was in batman Mm. (laughs) you know he's very much seems to be uh, the 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 fact that he was kind of this key cultural figure through obviously starring in easy rider but also co-writing the trip gave him this air of danger and this mystique to him but he also you know was as much a kind of classic 80s movie star as anyone uh, you know i thought it's very interesting that you you trace out those careers it seems to be that they seem three of them seem fairly emblematic of what happened to a lot of people who are part of the counterculture in general yeah i bet dennis, dennis hopper at the time of easy warrior didn't think uh, one day I'll be in the Super Mario movie playing mm. a weird dinosaur. Yeah. Yeah, he didn't think that 
he would you know struggle terribly to get all of his projects made for years to come they would lose his mind in bolivia or wherever it was he went to film the last movie Mm. have you ever seen that movie i have watched like 45 minutes of it and it is kind of brilliant but the version i watched was like a not terribly legal version on a not great site <laughs> that mm. didn't have terribly great quality to it uh, i keep meaning to buy the blu-ray of it because the blu-ray came out like a year or so ago like they finally like restored it and put it out and apparently it's like a real uh, keystone for understanding a lot of what was happening in that era of american filmmaking and a real sign of the level of freedom that someone like hopper had on the wake of easy rider and and after reading easy rider raging balls that was always one of the ones i felt i had to watch and track down but was always very hard to find mm. no yeah yeah is i've i've never come across a legit legal copy of it and it's something i've always been kind of curiously fascinated by since reading easy riders raging balls but yeah never actually got round to but yeah, interesting career, young Hopper. Uh, he popped up in like uh, he popped up in what did I watch the other day? Rebel Without a Cause. He's like one of the mm. the punks from that. Uh, and then yeah, just a handful of years later, he's you know off his tits rolling around New Orleans. Yeah, and and he and Nicholson and Fonda all kind of had the same career up until those point of like bit parts in small movies, doing stuff on television, nothing really coming together for them. Mm, Corman stuff, all of them, I think. Yeah, yeah. And then suddenly that one movie just like completely captures the zeitgeist and catapults them to huge success. Mm, it's, dif- uh, it's difficult for us to equate the impact that Easy Rider had mm. um, so far away from it, but it was enough to make the studios take notice of things. Mm. I mean, other than, is there anything in our lifetimes that has been as uh, revelatory thing? Or do you think that by the time we were on the scene, the blockbuster high concept mode of cinema was, you know, in vogue and has never really been out? I guess a, a very much smaller version of it in that it, basically just is tied to this one guy would be like the back-to-back success of the four-year-old virgin knocked up and super bad mm-hmm. which really did reinvigorate and wedding crashes um really did reinvigorate the raunchy comedy for a while like it, it really felt as if there was nothing outside of american pie for a long time and it's you know sequels and eventual dvd sequels and then suddenly those three movies or those four movies hit really, really big. And it was a case of, again, like similar to a lot of those movies in the, the 60s or whatever, it really felt as if there was this kind of cadre of stars that were suddenly made overnight. These people who, you know, maybe had been sort of known on the edges of Hollywood, maybe had had a hit here or there. But, you know, prior to Wedding Crashes or Dodgeball, like... Vince Vaughn wasn't really a star. Mm. Like, he was the guy who was in Swingers, where it'd been a cult hit, and he'd been in a few things since then, but, like, no one was really being like, oh, man, the fourth lead of Lost World, Jurassic Park, brilliant. But whereas, like, after that, you really do feel as if he's, like, a major name. Will Ferrell was kind of a guy who, obviously, he was a big name over here because of Saturday Night Live, but wasn't, you know, kind of a global brand or whatever. And suddenly those movies make him a big star. 
So it, I, I, that's the, 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 the thing in my lifetime that I can really think of where suddenly there was a whole slew of movies all of a similar genre, a similar lack of discipline in terms of their construction and writing and editing that all kind of came out at the same time because they felt uh, studios thought they really needed to capitalize on the success that came off of the three Apatow directed slash produced movies. Mm, yeah. Yeah. That's weird to think that that is the, the big, <laughs> the biggest cultural movement in our times, but they oh, did oh, make a lot superhero, of movie. superhero movies as well. Also. Yeah. But I mean, outside of blockbuster filmmaking, you know, it's, I think the sh- it it hasn't really taken root outside of Disney, but I do feel like the push for everyone to have a shared universe that was the, like big over the last five years um, kind of feels a little like that one that didn't take root. But that if if the Mummy had been a success, <laughs> and or and uh, Spider Man, the Amazing Spider Man two had been a success, and they had suddenly launched, you know, a Sinister Six movie or whatever. Maybe that would have been it, where everyone was like, "Hey, we can reproduce this thing Disney have done." And now they all realize, "Oh shit, we wasted billions of dollars doing a thing only Disney have figured out how to do." Mm, yeah, yeah. What are some of the movies that you feel like that were made outside of the time period that we're discussing? That either really engage with the counterculture as a movement or have come to define it. Because, like, one of the few movies I can think of that really tries to engage with it, like, really intellectually and emotionally would be something like John Sayles' The Return of the Secaucus 7, where you have all these people playing people who were activists in the 60s and had all been you know, kind of arrested, which is where they get their name from, who have all kind of grown up middle-aged, they have families in some cases and they're all kind of trying to figure out what it means to be you know sort of approaching middle age having had a radical past Mm. and that to me feels like one that really kind of earnestly and honestly tries to grapple with these things and i think is probably stems from i i presume john sales his own experience because he definitely seems like someone who would have been you know part of that whole milieu based on everything else he's made um but then you also have kind of like the slightly more glossier, slightly less interested in engaging with the the substance of it version of that in the big chill, which mm. is kind of obviously a more commercial version of that. And it was a more successful version, but really seems to have defined, I think, for a lot of people, like the image of a lot of people in the bait of a lot of those baby boomers who are part of the counterculture people who just kind of like, shed it and grew out of it and became you know yuppies Mm, yeah those those films are generally not particularly kindly referred to as yuppie nostalgia um films where people like you say who did grow up in that time and stood for something um end up thinking about all those times but we've got money now so Mm. yeah maybe that was no outside of it there, there really isn't a great deal beyond like I made the joke earlier about having a, you know, an auntie that smells of patchouli oil of like, you see characters fr- who are clearly were part of the counterculture become clumsy stereotypes for comic effect in other things. Yeah. There's not a huge number that you think of where people are approaching it from a genuine point of curiosity. No, like meet um, the, meet the fuckers or something like that would just mm. like springs to mind about how that is distilled down into its essence now yeah or probably the most 
certainly the most successful film that you know, kind of depicts the counterculture is like Forrest Gump. Because mm-hmm. a big part of that is about Jenny's journey through being a hippie and being involved with, you know, the Black Panthers and things like that. And it's all very much from a perspective of like, well, we all make mistakes as opposed to, hey, these people were maybe clumsily in some cases trying to change the world. But mm. they were doing it from a position of thinking, yeah, the world's fucked. We probably need to do something to fix it. And instead like the whole ethos of that movie seems to be like ha ha let's laugh at the hippies yeah don't be a hippie or like push for change because you'll die of aids mm. is what what that film seems to say why don't you start yeah. a corporation um a kind of global shrimp conglomerate but yeah yeah terrible I, yes. uh, do i even like forrest gump like i do you, i remember you? like <laughs> a couple of years ago Quentin Tarantino launching a very passionate defense about how that film was actually a good movie. And I don't know, like, was he being a contrarian? Because I seem to remember it being pretty bad. I haven't watched it in a, in many years. I remember the last time I watched it, finding it more adult than I'd remembered. Because I think I watched it when I was like a real young kid. It came out when I was eight. So I think I watched it for the first time when I was like nine or ten. Mm-hmm. And like all of the sex stuff just went completely over my head and didn't really get any of that. But I didn't remember like the rest of the stuff being especially good. And especially now, I also I didn't really have any context for a lot of the things it was referencing. And now it feels like a Family Guy style grab bag of <laughs> just references from the time. Yeah. It's like, hey, those shit happened bumper stickers. Hey, that's where they came from. It was expired, inspired by this one guy. Mm. And like all of the stuff that you know, him being inserted into the newsreel footage and stuff, you think, oh, well, that's, like, technically very impressive and that's something that Zemeckis had been doing for doing for a long time. If you go back to, like, I want to hold your hand, which has a lot of that sort of stuff. But, yeah, I don't think it holds up particularly well as a movie. Are you describing the, you know, the Bubba Gump, Bubba Gump shrimp thing also made me laugh because I was just thinking, oh, yeah, that's, like, the second movie he did where a white person steals a black person's idea and gets credit for it mm-hmm. which he does in back to the future as well with uh marty mcfly being the inventor of rock and roll yeah yeah which yeah is that new sound you're looking for um yeah, yeah that's bad that is bad i mean it, and there's a film in which he does kind of try and fuck his mum um mm. it's you know up there with the worst things in that yeah yeah i like a lot of movies that Zemeckis has made but there are some parts of it where you kind of dig down into it and think there's some weird there's some weird stuff going on here mm, yeah yeah it's one of my favourite bits about Glow uh, the first season of Glow and Mark Maron's working on a script with time travel and weird Oedipal shit and then he finds out the film Back to the Future comes out and he's <laughs> absolutely devastated yeah um, yeah. Um, and the last one for me in terms of it's it's not a major part of the movie but I think it brings us full circle with the Peter Fonda-ness of it all, which is the movie The Limey by Steven Soderbergh, where Peter Fonda's character in it is someone who, you know, was a record producer in the 60s and is kind of a big... He has this long monologue where he talks about the 60s and talks about, uh, you know, saying, hey, it was kind of like a dream where you understood the language and everyone else did as well and talking about it in these kind of like elegiac terms. And then he ends it with saying, that was the 60s. Actually, it wasn't even that. 
is really just 66 and the beginning of 67, which I think is like such a wonderful encapsulation of him, his his attachment to that period of it being this real kind of like bright thing that people romanticize so much that people, anyone like even remotely associated with it has that kind of sheen on them forever, particularly the way in which a whole generation has really romanticized the 60s for themselves and for their children even at the same time as they ruthlessly mock the more earnest and, you know, social change and civil rights versions of it. Mm, yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of, oh God, who's, who is it? It's Bruce Willis, definitely in a film. Mm. And he's saying, it's not the wild West. Hell, the wild West wasn't even the wild West. Mm. Um, and it's that similar thing with this kind of weird um, attachment to something that was probably awful. <laughs> So we end this episode, as we end all our episodes, with Shot Reverse Shot Recommends, in which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Matt, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? Um, I'm going to recommend something that we might have talked about before, but never really probably uh, on the show. We talk about it a lot off air. I'm going to recommend a podcast called The Adventure Zone, um, Mm. which is by those McElroy boys. If you don't know who they are, you probably have heard of their podcast my brother my brother and me which is very good um but they have uh they did started a, a separate podcast called the adventure zone where they played D with their dad and it started off as just like i'm not sure they were that serious about it really um and that was in 2016 and it is still going and they have made like two best-selling graphic novels out of some of the arcs they've created um, and I was very late to the party. I think Ed had listened to probably most of it before I even got wind of the fact that it was a thing. Um, and I listened to the first arc of the show, which is a 69 episode arc called the balance arc. And, uh, from what starts off as just a joke of, of, you know, some brothers and their dad playing through the start adventure in the fifth edition D and D, um, beginners box ends up being a very emotional, very rewarding set of bit of kind of live storytelling and i'm come to the party late and i've got i'm i like it when things like this happen and i've got you know well over a hundred episodes to listen to and that's great because they've moved on to other arcs and stuff now but i feel like now i've ended the balance arc which is the first like i say 69 episode arc of the show i thought i would recommend it here because if you haven't gone to it even if you don't have any interest in you know D or tabletop games but you do have interest in kind of like collaborative storytelling, you will love it because it's fucking stupid in places. It's, <laughs> you know, really dumb, but it comes from like, you know, this lovely warm place and the guy's always really good to listen to. And yeah, I just, I just really enjoy how they grew as characters and also as a group from playing kind of like a tabletop game, essentially. And regular listeners of the show will know that I love those things and um, I love the adventure zone and I'm recommending, recommending it to you all a good three years after, after this would have been a hot recommendation. Yeah. And I'll second it. I really love the adventure zone, particularly that first arc balance, I think is incredible. Like you say, it's incredibly funny and silly and ultimately kind of very moving. And it is really fascinating and wonderful seeing them grow as performers to see Griffin who uh, DMs it all grow as a storyteller as his arcs kind of become more complicated and uh, also when his his family do things he did not account for and has to respond on the fly those kind of moments are 
really worth listening to. And, you know, I don't have any massive interest in tabletop games and it's one of my favourite things that's ever been done with podcasting as a medium. Mm, there you go. That's the highest praise you can give it. I'm going to recommend a movie called The Farewell, directed by Lulu Wang. Now, uh, we were talking a little bit about this beforehand, but uh, I'm very wary of movies that get a lot of praise from Sundance and also are the subject of bidding wars because, and I got a little bit of shit for this from some people when I mentioned this on Facebook, um, when they're, they're what I refer to as Sundance great movies, which is often means they are real world okay. Uh, you know, like sometimes in the, the heat of a film festival, and you and I have both been to film festivals, and I think we've inst- uh, experienced some of this, you know, you're watching a lot of fairly heavy movies and in often in, in close proximity to each other and sometimes something that has like a hint of lightness to it, you'll be like, oh, amazing, best of the festival, give it all the awards. And uh, as such, I tend to be a little bit wary of movies that that come out of Sundance with that sort of pre-release buzz because sometimes they don't really measure up to it. But this one, more than measured up to it, I think, uh, it stars Aquafina, who people probably know best from uh, Ocean's 8 or... Crazy Rich Asians. Uh, she plays a young woman whose grandmother, who lives in, who is from China and still lives in China, is diagnosed with terminal cancer. She, the family decide not to tell the grandmother because uh, that's something that apparently is is a fairly common in Chinese families, is they don't tell people if they have cancer because they believe that the stress and worry from it, you know, makes the situation worse for them. But what they do do is they hastily arrange a wedding for uh, the main character Billy's uh, cousin he's kind of marrying a Japanese girl as a an excuse to get the whole family together so they can say goodbye and it's a really funny movie in places it's very moving in places there's it's got a real keen sense of family I think it's it's depiction of the the various tensions that inevitably boil to the surface from all these people being in proximity to each other and maintaining a lie it felt feels really real to me and i think it's a, a really strong piece of work i think this is only lu wang's second or third movie and uh, i think it's really good it's done particularly it's done fairly well in the u.s so far it's earned like 12 million dollars after a few weeks in limited release which is kind of very strong and i hope it continues to do well in the week's head and people check it out because i do think it is a really uh wonderful piece of intimate honest filmmaking hmm. if you've enjoyed this episode of the show then please subscribe to us on itunes stitcher player fm spotify all the usual places uh, raters reviewers and recommend it to your friends it's the best way to help us grow our audience you can also find us on facebook and twitter where we're at srs underscore podcast we'll be back next week with something entirely different but until then it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me Thank you.